Good to be together today on the Lord's Day. First and foremost, it's the Lord's Day, but it's also recognized as Christmas Day. And so on behalf of the leadership of Grace Bible Church, wish you all a Merry Christmas. And we want to thank you for making the Lord's Day worship a priority by coming here. What does Christmas mean to you? What is it that, that, that you like about Christmas personally? Um, some, it might be getting gifts, right? Kids, probably. <laughs> That's probably uh, one of the things. Maybe it's the lights. We were at friend's house uh, and walked around the neighborhood and saw lots of pretty colorful lights. Um, some like to decorate trees. Some, some just want the days off, rest and relaxation, R&R, right? It's like, hey, a couple extra days off, you know? But it's also a time of confusion. You know, people say, happy holidays. Well, what's the holiday for, right? You can't say Merry Christmas in many places, but it's happy holidays. But what is the holiday? Also, with, with each passing Christmas, there seems to be more about selfishness, uh, promoting Santa, anything other than promoting Christ. Christmas is about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world. And, and, and the, the theological term for that is the incarnation. We celebrate the great truth of the incarnation of the Son of God all year long. Every Lord's Day we celebrate that. He has come to rescue us. Actually, the title of the message is Jesus Christ came on a rescue mission to rescue sinners. And so um, you think of some of the verses, Galatians 4.4, 4, we know these verses, right? But when the fullness of time came, right, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It's, 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 it's an amazing thing to consider that God became a man, it's, it's something that we, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around. Or perhaps John 1.14, we're preaching through the Gospel of John right now in chapter 3 at the end, but in, in chapter 1 of verse 14, the Word who was with God before the foundation of the world became flesh and dwelt among us. Those, those words are packed full of meaning. It speaks volumes to us. It's the invisible God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, became visible and was born of a virgin. Or to put it another way, the Creator entered His own creation. That's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to wrap our minds around. And then also, what defines the humility of Jesus, and really His humiliation, because coming into the sin-cursed world from the bliss of heaven, we have these terms, He emptied himself, right? He took the form of a servant, a lowly, lowly servant. You see that even in John 13 as he's washing the disciples' feet. But then he became obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, not just a quick execution, right? Death on a cross. Brethren, he came to die, that's what we celebrate because his, his dying on the cross rescued us as ruined sinners as he purchased our salvation. And so you have this mystery of full deity. He never ceased to be God, 
but full humanity because he had to be a man in order to be a valid substitute for us on the cross. All of the historical events concerning Jesus are vital to his mission to save sinners. He could never die for sins if he were never born. So we have to get the idea of in a manger, in a, in a cradle, whatever, like the baby Jesus came on a mission to grow up, right, and to become a man to purchase our salvation. So we're going to look at two texts of Scripture today with God's help. And um, the Luke 2 passage, we're going to look at um, a good part of our time, but we're also going to be in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll read just verses 13 and 14 from Luke 2 for us again, since we just heard it read. And suddenly there appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And then First Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people this day. We thank you even for the visitors that have come from various areas around the country. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would just bless our worship as we worship now and hearing the preaching of your word. We thank you for the glorious, doctrinally rich hymns that we've been able to sing already, the scriptures that we've heard read, and now, Lord, may we give our attention to you and help the weak one that stands behind this pulpit, we ask in Christ's name, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is an amazing statement, verse 15. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Um, This whole idea of, now just look at the first few words there. It's a trustworthy statement. When, When Paul uses that in the pastorals, which it occurs several times, it's almost like the amen, amen that Jesus does, right? It's an explanation point. It's don't miss this. And so he's saying, It is a trustworthy statement. In other words, it deserves a valid hearing and an eager reception. If it's a trustworthy statement, we should want to hear what is this statement. We should be eager to hear it. And then the substance of the message is that Jesus Christ came into the world. That's speaking of his incarnation. His coming into the world was prophesied through a myriad of Old Testament prophecies, one of which from Micah 5 we've already read long ago. He willingly came. Nobody forced him. The father didn't have to twist his arm 
and say, go, you're only going to have to be there for 33 years. None of that kind of silliness. There's a, a sweet harmony and an amazing unity among the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. In fact, the plan of redemption was planned before anything was even created. So it was all worked out. It was all agreed upon. The Son did not come against His will. Out of love for the Father and the Spirit, out of love for the people that He would purchase, He willingly came into this world. Matthew Henry says this with his uh, Puritan wit, as it were, the God who took a motherless woman out of the side of a man, right, creating Eve out of Adam, took a fatherless man out of the body of a woman. The God who took a motherless woman out of the side of a man took a fatherless man out of the body of a woman. And then we see here that it's he came into the world to do something, to save sinners. That's an amazing thing. That's a, an amazing condescending grace. Uh, the Godhead, perfectly satisfied within itself, sends the second person of the Holy Trinity to purchase our salvation. He didn't come just to be a good teacher. He didn't come to set a good example, though. Yes, he is all of those things. But he came with a specific mission set before him to save sinners, to offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross of Christ, to secure our salvation for all time. He came on a specific mission. His sufferings and the pain that he endured was real. It wasn't manufactured. It wasn't as though, well, he's the God-man, I can just turn off my nerves, right? No, it's not that at all. It was a real suffering on our behalf. Now, why did Paul think he's the foremost of, uh, of, of, you know, he says here that um, to come to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Notice he doesn't say, I was foremost of all. But now I've been granted my apostleship. Now I've arrived at a place in my sanctification that I'm no longer the foremost of all. He doesn't say any of that. This is a redeemed Paul that now understands the gravity of his sin, the depths of his own depravity, even as a redeemed sinner that has been given this task as an apostle. He understood he was the foremost of all. In fact, just let your eyes lift up a few verses here. He says here, as he gives a little personal testimony in verse 13, well, let's begin at verse 12. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Notice he doesn't say that, that, that he set him forth, or he set himself forth, or he volunteered for this service. No, God is the one that appointed him. And then in verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. <clears throat> These are really strong words that he uses here. Uh, a blasphemer and then a persecutor. We know he was persecuting the church of Christ before that Damascus Road experience, right? When, he was, when, the, when the light shone around him and he was blind. But then it even says, violent aggressor. Now, I can say that before, I was, uh, before God saved me, that, that's describing me. <laughs> I 
I was a wicked, wicked man before God had got a hold of me. But then verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundance with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So he realizes he's foremost of all. In fact, in Ephesians 3.8, he says, to me, the very least of all the saints, right? So he has this mindset, this grace was given to me, the very least of all the saints. Well, why are the worst of sinners so often saved? We're told in verse 16, Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that, that's a Hena clause in the Greek, this is a purpose, right? For this reason, I was found mercy so that in me, as exhibit A, foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. It's In other words, it's each one of us that has been saved for exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C of God's great patience and how he can take someone that is, that is so enslaved to sin and make them abundant for his glory in the kingdom of God. Well, that's, that's just good news, okay? That's, there's, no other word, there's no other words to say. That's good news. And good news deserves to have a reply. And you see that in verse 17, doxology. Paul can't help it. He's not even to the end of the letter. And and he's like, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He can't help it but to shout forth these praises. So with that as a backdrop, now remember this is written about 30 years after Christ, 1 Timothy, um, most think about 61, 62, something like that. AD, but um, let's go back now to Luke chapter 2, and really going to focus on 13 to 14, but um, I do want to just quickly set the context. So there's a census, and that's what brings um, Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem, okay? And so I'm going to not reread those first five verses, but Mary gives birth to a son just in complete fulfillment of Micah 5, right? That, that this king will come out of this insignificant, tiny little town. And, and, and it's, so it's an fulfillment. In God's providence, the red carpets aren't rolled out. Um, it's, it's, this is no, not a focus on the city per se, but rather the birth happens in a stable, in almost total obscurity. J.C. Ryle said this, Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and authority, we would have reason to be amazed. But to become poor, as the very poorest of mankind, and lowly as the very lowest, this is love that passes understanding. It is unspeakable, it is unsearchable. And I would, I would agree with that. It is... It, we, it's, yeah, we know, we know that that's true, but to put our minds around that and to think of that condescension of, of the Son of God to be born in such absolute obscurity, Paul would capture it like this in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. What an amazing thing, that through his poverty we might become rich.
So the baby's born. Um, they tried the Motel 6. They tried all the other hotels. It was just all, there was no room, no vacancy everywhere they went, right? There's, it says there's no room for them at the inn. And this inn could even just be like an extra room in a house, right? But there was no room because so many had come for the census. There was just no room. And so what happens? He's laid in a manger, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the end. <clears throat> the, actually, the angel will, will give the revelation that the sign is that he's laid in a manger. That, that's the unusual thing, but being wrapped in the swatting, swatting clothes is normal. Well, very quickly, verses 8 to 12, we see here the, the message declared. First of all, just the setting in the same region... Right? Luke's telling us, now, this has happened, the birth has happened. But in the same area, in the same region, there were shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock at night. This would be their work. They would come together in the evening time, close together, so the body heat could maintain um, the heat there. It likely was a very dark night, starlit sky, a chilly evening. And um, the hands of the shepherds, you could picture, would be rough and callous from rescuing the sheep that would tend to run off, warding off enemies, being outside in the sun and then in the cold air at night. But then something happens in verse 9. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then look at the end of the verse. And they were terribly frightened. I think we would be as well. So suddenly, like in, a, in, a, in an instant, the darkness is pierced by this light. It's not like when you're camping and somebody's driving through the campground with the headlights and it's like the bright light or anything like that or a spotlight. The light was everywhere around them. It was like instant brightness everywhere they looked. It was a revelation of his Shekinah glory, as it were. They sense the greatness of the majesty of God, and so they are afraid. They were terrified, but what did the angels say? Do not be afraid. you got to love those words in Scripture. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He says, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Don't be afraid. I've come with a message. Now, how many angels are here right now? Just one, right? An angel of the Lord. The good news is mentioned. The, the good tidings of great joy. And what is the news in verse 11? For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What is this news? It's that Jesus Christ has come, but it's interesting that the name Jesus isn't here, right? We have it in Matthew, you shall name his name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. But here the revelation is, seeks to focus on Savior, Christ, and Lord. Savior, obviously the one who rescues and delivers, as we've been talking about, um, someone confronting sin head on. Um, in verse chapter 1 of verse 49, Zacharias's prophecy, uh, it says, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. 
So he is the Savior, the horn of salvation, and then Christ, the anointed one, the prophesied Messiah from all of those Old Testament, Testament prophecies, and even the aspect of which we see Jesus Christ as being prophet, priest, and king, the threefold office, as it were. And Christ is that for us. Uh, even the Old Testament kings, they were anointed, right, for their work. And of course, Jesus is the final king as he establishes his kingdom. And the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7.14, prophesies that his kingdom will be forever and ever and ever. So he is king. He's also a priest. In the Old Testament, priests were anointed with oil as a sign of their mission and life. But he is the great and final high priest, as we learn in the book of Hebrews. There's no other priest to come after him. But then he's also prophet. He speaks the very words of God. He's the very mouthpiece of God. Everything he says is only truth. <clears throat> so Savior Christ and then Lord. Sometimes of one having authority over a group, but when it refers to Jesus Christ, it's much more than that. When the Bible refers to him as Lord, he's telling us that Jesus is indeed God. Remember Paul said in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, um, and so this idea that's a very common confession, he is Lord, he's the ruler of my life. And then in verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. That is such an unusual thing, right? That would be a sign. It's not as though the shepherds saw that every day, right? So this would be an obvious sign of who, of where the Savior, Christ, and Lord is. And they're, they're all these three titles are packed together. There's no articles. It reveals the greatness of Mary's son. Well, then we see this angelic praise magnified. Notice the second suddenly in our text, verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the one angel a multitude of angels. That's an amazing thing. A multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, first of all, suddenly, the word means a dramatic swiftness. It's something that, it's, it's the implication is something of the unexpectedness of this. There's already one angel. The shepherds are already terrified, right? And now suddenly this multitude appears all around them. And, and, and they're, they're, they're praising God. Think of what the shepherds must have been feeling if they were startled over one angel. What might they be over tens of thousands of angels? What would it take for you to be shocked or amazed and, and afraid? The Bible says that the testimony are two or three witnesses. Let every fact be established. And so there's a, a multitude of angels. And angels are those that attend unto God. Angels are those that praise God day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Your whole earth is filled with your glory. This is a, um, an amazing thing. And so these angels have been created to praise the triune God. These are the non-fallen angels, obviously. And they've been created for that. And, and did you know that you too, made in the image of God, have been created to glorify and to praise God? 
It's actually a bit of a, a, a paradox that, that this, the, the, when it says the host, right, that means actually army, heavenly host, but they come announcing peace. It's a bit of a paradox, right? Um, this army is announcing peace. Notice with me at the end of verse 13, we're going to get into the content right now. We're just seeing who is doing the praising. Um, it's this heavenly host. And notice it says praising God and saying. Why aren't they singing? Did you ever think of that? I mean, even the, the chorus in heaven, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, it's because they do not know anything of being lost and ruined into sin, being redeemed like we do, right? And, and so the angels have never known what it's like to be a sinner. They've never had their guilt removed. They, they've, they, they, even though they're created beings, they're sinless beings. They have not been covered by the blood of the Lamb like we have. Those of us who have been saved by grace can't help but to sing of, of the redemption that we have experienced and the amazing grace. It's because of that that he's put a new song in our heart that we just want to praise him all the time. Even people who can't sing are able to sing his praises, you know, because of the glorious gospel. You see, the angels have been observers of salvation, but they've not experienced salvation. And so Luke is, is, is right here. It says they're praising God, and they're saying. In other words, they're stating theological truth of which they rejoice in, but they haven't experienced like we have. Having seen who is doing the praising, let's look at the content of the course. You might even think of this as the first Christmas hymn of sorts, uh, right? Um, and the emphasis is on the three nouns, glory, peace, and pleased. First of all, God's glory. Glory to God in the highest. Wow, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Glory to God in the highest. These angels knew full well of God's glory. They have served him in his immediate presence. They understand his infinite holiness. Glory to God is necess a necessary preliminary to having real peace on earth. All heaven breaks the bounds. An anthem of praise first comes from the angels and then sweeps down over Bethlehem, the plains of Bethlehem, and great doxology. Glory to God in the highest. Not just glory to God high or higher than some other things, but it's the absolute highest. There's, there's no one can be above God. This is superlative language. Glory to God in the highest. Nobody can top that. The angels in heaven were associated with Jesus Christ even before the incarnation. Remember the scene in Isaiah 6. It's a beautiful scene. The angels were aware of man's fall into sin. The angels know. The, the angel that came in Matthew 1.21, he will save his people from their sin. This song is an outpouring of adoration. Glory to God in the highest. Respect, recognition, renown, glory to God in the highest. Think of God's glory. It proceeds from God manifested through his word and displayed in all of his, his attributes, his justice, his sovereignty, his righteousness, and even his mercy. What depths of mercy that he would come into the world to save wretches, 
wretches who refused to submit to him in their own free will, enemies of God, we're at enmity of God, we're at war with God, and this God becomes a man to save rebels. It is that he might glorify his name in revealing the riches of his grace, his boundless mercy. This anthem of praise is amazing because they've never sinned. They had no need of a Savior. They're just servants of the triune God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So the angels continue and say in the second phrase, and on earth peace among men. Isn't that amazing? And on earth, right? These angels, they're a heavenly host. They've come from heaven, right? It's, they're, they're still angels. It's just a change of location of how they're serving. Here they are revealing to the shepherds this great and wonderful news. But think of it. It says on earth, out of all the planets, the billions of galaxies, and who knows, trillions of planets, God chooses this particular speck of dust in the span uh, of, of all of the galaxies, right? That's what earth is. And, and, and he, he reveals his glory. This planet has been marked out for God to display his most glorious work ever, a work of redemption for ruined sinners. He must do it. He must come down because there's no way sinful man can raise himself up unto God. And so he sends Jesus on a rescue mission. This is what the angels are singing about. Peace. That's a promise you need to cling to in this sin-cursed world. It's a promise that really just jumps off the page. A peace that can only come from God. That's a promise that we should cling to even this very Christmas. Now, what does he mean by peace? What do they mean by Peace. Well, there's pieces used in different ways, right? I mean, there's a horizontal peace, right? Be peacemakers so far as it depends upon you. Be at peace with all men, all right? So there's that aspect. You children, you know what this is when you fight with your siblings, right? It's a lack of peace. <laughs> it's not speaking of political peace either. And even the Bible talks about that, uh, you know, with prayer and supplication, that we receive this peace that surpasses understanding, right? And that's something that's in the inside. That's something that we receive for a season. But we're so fickle that that peace comes and goes, right? And so it's not talking about horizontal relationships. It's not talking about an inward peace. It's talking about a peace that goes much deeper than this. The angels are speaking of the possibility of having peace with God, it's a vertical thing. And we can have peace with God by the removal of our sin. We're all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. We are lawbreakers. The law of God, the moral law, especially represents God's perfect, holy character, and we have broken his law. We're at enmity with God by nature. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walked. We were by nature children of wrath. What does God think of sin? Well, I'm reading through Genesis right now, and um, (laughs) I I think I'm on chapter 20, and um, already God has destroyed and revealed his holy character, right? Noah, 
flooded the world. By the way, that was a, a, a global flood. Don't believe lies of people trying to explain it away that it was regional. Uh, well, there's sin already in the garden. <laughs> Adam and Eve's driven out of the garden. Mankind becomes so corrupt in the early like seven and eight that God floods the world. Another 10 chapters, there's all this wickedness, and God rains fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. What does God think about sin? He takes it seriously, and he will judge it. There is a place called hell that was created for the devil and his angels. The soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. Why? Because God is holy, God is righteous. Our great need is peace with God, and that only comes by the righteousness of Christ being applied to us. Apart from Christ, you will face the one who, it says, has eyes of a flame of fire. He will judge you, and he will send you to a terrible place called hell if you do not find reconciliation. This peace that, 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 that comes to us is explained in Colossians 1. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, that is Christ, and through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth are things in heaven. That, that language of reconciliation, that, that language of, of, of peace that is real peace with God, the enmity is no more. We're now children of God, adopted into his family. That is the fruit of this peace. It's a permanent peace, if you've experienced it. Well, now that we have some idea of what this glorious peace is, is it for everybody, every single person in the, in the earth? Well, it looks like here that in some cards and Christmas cards kind of misquote this, um, with whom he is pleased. Does that mean we work so that God is pleased with us and then we receive the peace? No, of course not, right? The emphasis is on God. He displays his great divine love to men unconditionally. It's not men of goodwill, uh, or some translations, goodwill to all men. It is not that at all. Hallmark got that wrong. I think a lot of their cards has that. Um, the angels are not glorying in man and <laughs> in mankind's accomplishments. The angels are glorying in God and his good pleasure extended to sinful man in a distinct group, a group that would repent and believe and be born again. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. This is reserved for those who come to Christ. This peace goes far beyond our immediate circumstances. It passes all understanding. It is permanent, as I said. The Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us, and we wholly lean on Him. We wholly cling to Him. We wholly trust in Him, never to be forsaken. Many people who are not Christians say this season brings peace to them, right? You've talked to them, your family members and all that. They say, um, oh, it's such a, a season of peace, right? But soon the lights come down, the Christmas music goes away, and the mundane comes back. So it's a very temporal peace, but not for the child of God. The angels speak of the source of this peace. It's a free gift, 
and it flows by the pure mercy of God. What an incredible anthem of praise that these shepherds heard. Lowly shepherds, the, the, like the lowest occupation of the day, as it were. And they were given this divine revelation. Verse 15, we don't have time to unpack the rest of the passage, but, and the angels had gone away from them into heaven, and the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry to find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. What an incredible scene. It's going to be incredible to fellowship in heaven with those shepherds and with what they saw. Well, a couple points of application for us. Praise God for the incarnation. Let's give God glory for that. Glory to God in the highest that he had this plan of redemption for us. He has put on mortal flesh to save us, sinful man, sinful men and women. Mercy is on great display here. Secondly, and it bears mentioning, is that um, some people like to do the Santa thing, you know, the guy in the red suit. I think you've seen him around the mall. He's kind of everywhere, right? Um, (laughs) Which um, robs the glory that is due to Jesus Christ. Right? Psalm 139. Who's omnipresent? Who's all-knowing? It's only God, right? But Santa claims to know all these things to millions He's venerated as the most adored person in the world. Parents faithfully speak uh, of all that he has done, and children long for his arrival. They pray to him, and they seek blessings from him, even. Churches host parties with him present, believe it or not. He judges if you've been good or bad. And get this, he writes your name in a book. Do you see how this is robbing glory from, the, from a, the true God? Away with such foolishness. And lastly, if you're here today and maybe somebody invited you, uh, maybe you're a young person and you've not yet believed, will you come to Bethlehem and believe? This obscure town, even with obscure shepherds, and, and just put yourself into this scene, this incredible light, this heavenly host, praising God. And and you can't help but to see the deep love that God has for ruined sinners. This is the account of his birth, but we know that he went to the cross on behalf of vile sinners. So today can be the day of salvation on Christmas Day. What an amazing thing that would be. But you have to fly to Christ. You have to confess that you're a sinner. You have to turn from your sin and repudiate it. Our sin is so great, but His mercy is an ocean that can wash us clean, as it were. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you so much for this season, and even that we can uh, take a look and pause into this glorious doctrine of the incarnation. We thank you for the gospel accounts and the different scenes that we have, and even this particular one in Luke, uh, just a majestic scene, Lord. May we not be Christians that are dull, that these things have become old, but may we always be amazed at this picture of your amazing grace to us, 
who are unworthy sinners. Lord, and I pray that for any outside of Christ that they would recognize they too are the foremost of sinners, even like the Apostle Paul, and that you will judge their sin. Oh Lord, I pray that that with the good news that they have heard today, that they would respond and act. But more than that, we pray that by your Spirit you would draw them. Oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.